This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's word. If you're visiting uh, Metro Presbyterian Church this morning, what a great passage to, uh, to uh, come to. Um, <laughs> your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Um, remember, the Sermon on the Mount is, is all about the kingdom. It's about life in the kingdom. And it's about the fact that when we receive Christ, that means that you're coming under the power of the king. And his power comes and he changes everything. And he restores everything in your life. And as a result of take, talking about, you know, all of life in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he makes a beeline. He just goes straight and heads towards talking about sexuality. You know, he doesn't stay away from it. He doesn't run from it. He doesn't hide from it. Um, he talks about it immediately, right after the Beatitudes. He talks about murder. goes right into talking about sex. Now, on the surface, a lot of people see the Christian understanding of sex as being one of the primary reasons um, that undermine the credibility of Christianity. But really, when you look deeper into the Christian view of sex, um, there's really, there are really evidences for its truth and its hope and its consistency. There are three things that Jesus says here in this text. And it's all about adultery, and it's about sex, and it's about lust. Um, the brokenness of sex, the meaning of sex, and the healing of sex. The brokenness, the meaning, the healing. First, we're going to go into the brokenness of sex. The reason why Jesus goes immediately into talking about sex is because, you know, similar to the Bible, Jesus is not flippant, he's not prudish about it, but in priority order, he's going through now and talking in order of priority, he's bearing witness to the fact that sex is one of the most blessed things um, that can happen to us. And at the same time, you know, it's, it's central. It's, um, you know, scholars throughout history, biblical scholars throughout history will tell you that it's central to the human condition, but it's also the, one of the most dangerous things, if not the most dangerous capacity that we have as human beings. It's only meant to happen uh, between a, uh, a man and his wife in marital commitment. Jesus says, verse 27, do not commit adultery. He starts with that. When people hear that today, they, they blink at me, you know, the slow blinking eyes. They blink at me. And now, listen, the Bible is unbelievably balanced. One of the things I've learned just studying the Bible over the course of years, it's unbelievably balanced. And, and that's what makes it so wise and so perfect. You know, I'll give you some examples. Last week, we heard about anger, anger and reconciliation. Really, that was a, that was a theme of yes, last week's uh, sermon. And uh, mainly what, the, if you were to sum up the entire sermon in like one or two sentences, you know, whether you have something against a person or whether that person has something against you, your responsibility is to go and reconcile with them, right? But the Bible's incredibly balanced. In the book of Proverbs, it says... Never answer a fool, you know, according to his folly. 
Don't even talk to a fool if he is you know, an unwise person. That means that it's possible to reconcile with somebody or want to reconcile with somebody and a person can continually use that reconciliation um, to persecute you, you know, as an opportunity to trap you, as a further opportunity to hurt you. And so at certain points, you've got to withdraw. You know, and later on you talk about discipline and church discipline, all those kind of things. The Bible says, do not lie, right? Do not lie. Social ethics will tell you, at least for the most part on the exterior, do not lie. You know, but in Hebrews, commends Rahab, who was a prostitute, who lied in order to, to protect the two Hebrew spies that she was hiding and thus carry for, carrying forth redemption. Incredibly balanced. On one hand, do not lie. And yet, Rahab is commended for lying, which means that there must be certain instances where you could actually even be commended for lying. There's so many, you know, so many aspects, you know, uh, of, of the balance of Scripture. You know, even murder. Do not murder, the Bible says. And yet, so balanced. You know, if you read the lawful texts in the Old Testament, there are definitely circumstances where God condones, be it in defense or whatever, you know, that sometimes it is lawful, you know, to, to murder or to kill somebody, be it, you know, self-defense or something like that. Incredibly balanced, incredibly nuanced, you know, but when it comes to adultery, there are no qualifications in the Bible. Absolutely no qualifications. In fact, Jesus here says, lust can lead you straight to hell. Look at the statements about hell. I mean, it's easy for us when you read that in this day and age to say, there we go, another sermon about hell and lust. You know, in the Christian church, those things seem to always go together, you know, um, which confirms everything that I always thought about, you know, the church and its view on sex. It's always bad. It's always dirty. You're going to go to hell if you lust. What a, what a negative view on sex. But you're really getting the wrong impression. When Jesus is talking about hell, when Jesus is talking about hell and sex, he's actually bearing witness you know, to the, not, not the lowness of sex, but the importance of it. The importance of sex, the power of sex, the dignity of sex in the human condition. Everyone in the Bible talks about hell. Here's an example. Everyone in the Bible talks about hell. But nobody talked about hell more than Jesus. In fact, Jesus talks about hell more than everybody in the Bible put together. <clears throat> Jesus says, do not, you know, dismiss the power of sex, and if you dismiss the power of sex, you're not respecting it, and he says, it's going to take you to hell. It's going to take you to hell. The word that he uses there <clears throat> is a Hebrew word, gina, right? And a gina is a garbage dump that resided outside of Jerusalem. It's where you put all the rotting, um, you know, deteriorating things. Everything that's decaying was thrown there. It's a big, big furnace um, where they would, be go- they would be thrown to be burned. And Jesus says this, unless you learn to deal with sex in your life, you know, the mystery of sex, the beauty of sex, you know, the uniqueness of sex, unless you behold the power of sex in your life, if you don't do that, it's going to spread to all the parts of your world and cause decay and destruction in your life. It's going to break you apart. Your life is literally going to fall apart. It's going to set you on fire. In other words, it's not so much that you're going to be thrown into hell. 
if you misuse or abuse you know, sex in your life, you're actually already burning. The deterioration, the rotting, the decay has already begun. What is hell? When Jesus talks about hell, what is hell that he's referring to? Hell is the final state of the soul for people who reject the king. Jesus is king. So being in hell doesn't mean that you cease to exist. You know, as one scholar put, put, you know, it doesn't mean that you cease to exist, but it means you no longer are able to carry out your original function. You're alienated. You know, God created you with a specific design and purpose, and sex is written into that design and purpose. But when you violate and break that design and purpose, you're no longer able to function and carry out the way you were originally designed. And that means that, you know, you don't understand your purpose. You cannot love. You cannot serve anybody because you're in absolute misery. It's going to lead you to misery. It's going to lead you to despondency. You're always going to be angry. You know, you can't serve anybody because you're in absolute misery. You're in total self-centeredness, self-absorption. You ever meet a self-centered person, a self-absorbed person? They're absolutely miserable. They're always angry. Why is that? It's because they're not, they can't give joy. They can't receive joy right. They're completely alienated from their original design, from their original function. And Jesus is saying that sexuality, if you misuse or abuse sex, it's one of the key ways for the soul to go into that condition. And so sexuality is important. Sex is incredibly important. It's incredibly central to the human condition. And the misuse of it, the abuse of it, will lead to brokenness in our lives. In other words, the world, the problem with the world, you know, it's not so much that the world out there has too high a view of sex, you know, but actually has too low a view of sex. The Bible has an incredibly high view, a higher view of sex. Jesus has a high view of sex. And those of us who abuse sex, and, you know, sadly to say, so many of us have abused sex in our lives, we understand the process of corrosion. When you misuse sex, then comes the boredom, then comes the apathy, then comes the cynicism, then comes the hardness in your life, the hardness in your heart. And, and that's just the beginning of the process. That happens almost immediately. And, you know, that shows us that Jesus says, man, there's a tremendous power that comes with sex. You know, he sees it as important, as dangerous, and yet delightful at the same time. So, does the Bible teach that sex is bad? No, absolutely not. What the Bible actually teaches us is that sex is a good thing. It's an amazing thing. It's a beautiful thing. But it's actually even deeper than that because on one hand, it could lead you to the glory of God, to understand the, deep, the depths of God's grace. But on the other hand, it could take you to the horrors of being distant from God. That's what sex does in our lives. That's the brokenness. What's the meaning of sex? The word adultery that Jesus uses in this text He's referring or implying sex outside the covenant of marriage. What is covenant? A covenant is a life-binding, love-binding contract between two parties. And they're saying that I am agreeing, I'm committed to you in a lifelong manner. Only death can separate us. That's the only thing that can separate us. So adultery isn't wrong because sex is dirty in some way. The Bible teaches us that adultery is wrong because of what sex is supposed to be and what we're violating. What is sex? Sex is an integrative act. It unites your body, your soul, your spirit, and your mind. 
your will, your emotions, all gets integrated. There's only one other thing in life that has such an integrative effect in our lives, and that's worship. That means our experience of sex is in very much almost parallel to God's intention to kind of help us to understand our experience of worship. That integrative act, binding mind and heart and soul and strength and spirit and will and emotions. All of that. And so, you know, when you're worshiping, what are you saying? You're saying, God, take me. I belong to you. I'm consumed by you. I'm captivated by you. I'm giving all of myself to you. Now, for us, that's incredibly easy to do when we're overworking. We put our mind and heart and soul and strength in our work. What does that mean? That our integrative acts usually revolve around things that actually will not grow you or help you or prosper you or mature you you know, build you, but actually destroy you. If you're overworking, you're going to start to destroy. If you're, you know, when you're working, when you should be resting, you know, your body's going to fall into decay. Your heart is going to fall into decay. Your mood, everything starts to shift around that. You know, when you're pursuing a relationship that you really shouldn't be pursuing, or rather, when you're pursuing a relationship in a way that you shouldn't be pursuing, you know, Jesus says, that is lust. And it's got many, many forms. And we, you know, it's not just a sexual thing. Most of the time that Christ refers to the word lust, he's not talking about anything sexual. In fact, he only does that twice in the New Testament. But in sex, it means that when you give yourself physically to somebody, you know, um, when you give yourself uh, physically to somebody, um, in that moment, what you're saying is you want to give yourself in every other way. You know, you're, you're saying that at least with your emotions, but you really haven't done that. God invented sex so that what you're doing with your body tends to have a force to make your soul want to do the same thing. He designed our bodies and our souls not, you know, a lot of philosophers in the Greek and Hellenistic age used to say that the body is separate from the soul and it's separate from the spirit. But actually the Christian Bible in that day and age is remarkable because they're not separate. You know, my heart says one thing, but my mind says something else. The Christian Bible teaches us that everything is integrated. Your mind, your heart, your soul, your spirit, all these things are integrated. And so when it has a way that, that when you're doing something with your body, there's a force to make your soul want to do the same thing. So when you open yourself physically, you know, when you're naked physically, there's a part of your soul that wants to be vulnerable. The intimacy is a desire for vulnerability. There's something in your soul that wants to be personally and socially vulnerable in every way. You know, that's why, you know, relationally you feel connected. You know, when you're having sex, relationally you feel connected. You feel like one. You feel integrated relationally. You know, so when you're giving yourself to somebody physically, what you're saying is, take me. I belong to you. You know, I want to be a part of you. When you enter into a decommitment, you're, what are you doing? For those of you who are married, you understand. When you enter into a deep commitment, the deepest commitment in a covenantal marriage, what you're saying is, I'm giving up my rights to be my own person now. So sex outside the context of marriage, you're separating then your body from yourself. You're separating your body from your soul. These things are designed to be together, but what you're doing is you're tearing these things apart. And when you give your body, you, know, you should be giving your whole self. 
When you're physically one with somebody without being personally or socially or legally or financially or, you know, emotionally, you know, in every other way with somebody, vulnerable in every other way, you're tearing apart the two things that were meant to be together. That's your design. And that is deterioration. That is disintegration. That is the beginning, you know, of the fire. That's what it is. That's what Jesus is talking about. When you, when you set something on fire, what happens? It's not so much that, oh, the pain, the pain of the fire. What's left is completely changed. It's disintegrated. There's a chemical reaction that, to, that takes place when you set something to fire. It will never be restored to its original properties. The entire nature and the property of it has changed. You're literally ripping apart two things that were designed to be together. So when you say, you know, I want to have sex, but I'm not yet ready to be married, what you're saying is, I want to have sex, I want to have physical oneness, you know, but I do not want to become vulnerable. I don't want to open my way in that. I'm not ready for that just yet, but I'll get there. Uh, You know, not in a way that's total in my life. I'll slowly get there. I'll ease into it. You know, I don't want to make the total sacrifice to you yet. I don't want to be tied to you yet. That's the abuse. That's the brokenness of sex. Every time sex, you have sex in a good marriage, what you're doing is you're recreating the ability to trust somebody again, totally and fully and in a vulnerable way. You're opening yourself up to all attack, you know, and at the same time you're saying, I'm totally okay with that because I know that this is safe because of the commitment that's there. You're making yourself, every time you have sex in a committed marriage, in a good marriage, what you're saying is you're, I'm making myself vulnerable again. I'm putting myself completely in another person's arms. I'm putting my life literally in their arms. You know, I'm literally, what you, you know, biblically speaking, we said that it's very similar to worship. You're performing a covenantal renewal ceremony every single time you sleep with your partner. You know, every single time a man sleeps with his wife, a wife is sleeping with her husband. You're performing a covenant of renewal. Those marriage vows that are taken, you're renewing it every single time. That's what makes it beautiful. But every single time you have sex outside of the covenant of marriage, you're actually destroying that commitment apparatus. You're tearing that thing apart. When someone caresses you, when someone accepts the most intimate part of your body, and at the same time they're being totally vulnerable to you, you know, scholars, every scholar, you know, that has ever written anything about sex says that there's an enormous, powerful healing that takes place when two people are incredibly vulnerable to each other in every committed way leading to sex. But when that happens outside of the covenant of marriage, as time goes on, it becomes harder to trust other people. It becomes hard, you know, it leads to an alienation. You know, it leads to distrust until what? until you experience the ultimate alienation in hell. That's what it is. So what do you do with your lust? What do we do with our lust? Jesus says, you know, first, verse 28, he says, but I tell you, and he says, do not commit adultery. That's what you've heard, heard it was said. Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lust, lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. That's what he says. Literally in the Greek, he says, he doesn't say, you know, Anyone who looks at another woman is committing adultery. That's not what he says. He says, you know, he, in other words, he's not condemning the fact that men sometimes look at women. He's not condemning the fact that women look at men. That's not what he's saying. In the Greek, literally, he says, whoever looks at a woman to lust. You know, um, another way of saying it, whoever looks 
in order to lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Another way of saying that is this. Jesus is not saying that there's something inherently wrong with your sexual desire that is natural. You were designed in many ways to be that way. It's central. We just talked about that. It's central to the human condition. You know, we are built with the, with the, um, the apparatus, the capacity to admire other people, including the way they look. You know, so that sexual attraction, attraction is natural. That's where the look actually comes from. But Jesus is not saying that it is anything wrong with that. But, and I'm not just talking to men. I'm talking to women. And I'm not just talking to married men. You know, I'm talking to singles as well. The Bible, on the one hand, says, you know, if you follow these passions, though, you know, that doesn't just stop with the look, but you're following these passions. You are not respecting the power of sex. You are not respecting, you are underestimating the power that this has in your life. You have too low a view. So, you know, on the other hand, if you say, you know, oh, sex is dirty, sex is defiling, you know, you're not respecting the goodness of sex. So in one way or another, either, you know, you still also have a too low a view of sex. Either you're not respecting the power of sex or you're not respecting the goodness of sex. Jesus is saying this. You are committing adultery if you're looking in order you know, in order to lust. You know, you have this inordinate motivation, you know, in your look that objectifies the other person. He says that is lust. That is lust. Now, the word lust, I want to unpack that a little bit, is not necessarily a sexual thing in the New Testament. The word lust appears over 60 times in the New Testament. And it's the Greek word epithumia. You know, it only appears twice with respect to sex. So Jesus is talking about something far greater and deeper than just a sexual yearning, you know, for another person. The word epithumia, you know, is translated as this. It is, an, is a, the desire's desire of your heart. It is the over-desire, a desire that captivates and controls you. It's an idol. That's the word that he's referring to. You know, so he, you know, he says, if you even look at a person in order, in a way that it's captivating you, it's ensnared you, the desire has gone to the core of your heart and it's kind of swept you away. In other words, what he's saying is, unless you're willing, he explains, you know, basically why love you know, it's such a powerful aspect. The concept of love is such a powerful aspect in our lives. You know, it's why we're willing to die for love. You know, I looked at the top 100 songs on iTunes this past week in preparation, just, to, just out of curiosity. How many of these songs are about love? All the lyrics, most of the lyrics. You know, you, iTunes gives you a minute and a half to listen to the words. All bad lyrics. Most of them, bad lyrics. Most of the songs are about love. Most of the songs are about love. I doubt any of those 100 songs are going to last the next 100 years, right? Most of you, it's not going to last the next 100 days, you know, in your playlist, right? Um, if you're not, you know, think about this right? None, very rarely, actually none of the songs that I saw in the top 100 are about work. But work is such a powerful thing in our lives. We overwork. We're captivated, consumed. You know, we lust after whatever it is that work gives us. It's an over-desire in our lives. But we don't write songs about it. What is it about love that we so easily just break into poetry we will write songs about love all the time, bad poetry, 
you know, all the time about love, it has that much more of a powerful effect in our lives. As much as work can ensnare you, you know, as much as a friendship can ensnare you, the power of sex in our lives is that much deeper, that much greater. It's an epithumia, an over-desire that captivates you and controls you in, down to your motivational center. Think about the things that when you meet somebody that you're really interested in and you are just completely captivated by that person, what you think, what you do, you know, starts to revolve around that person. Jesus is saying, that is lust. That is lust. If you're manipulating your way into that person's life, that is lust. It is an over-desire. It's not necessarily sexual. You know, um, you know, what you're really saying is, I need that person in my life in order to increase my options, increase my potential, increase my freedom, increase my joy. That's what I need. You know, not having this person in my life is going to decrease my options, decrease my potential, decrease my, you know, my freedom, decrease my joy. That's why I need that. I need to just get in there somehow. I need to, to work my way into that person's life. I need to be in front of that person's face. I need to capture that person's attention. I will dress whatever. I will do whatever. I will say whatever. I will, you know, be in whatever circle to be able to get there. That, Jesus is saying, is lust. Lust means to take something good, a relationship. Lust means to take something good, a friendship. You know, marriage is the deepest form of a friendship. It doesn't go the other way. It starts with friendship and it grows and grows and grows and to a degree of magnitude that you can't really capture. That's why we break into song and poetry about it. You can't control yourself, you know. It's your, it's your you know, all the integrative act starts to take place. And, and that's what it is. It's just a deep, deep, deep friendship. Lust is to something good. And you get from that thing what you can only get from God. You're only designed to get those things from God, but, but you take something good and you distort it and you manipulate it to get something out of it that you can only get from God. You're using it basically, you know, I need this person to increase my potential, increase my freedom, increase my joy, increase my options. You're using it to self-maximize, to grow, you know, to maximize your potential, maximize your pleasure, maximize, you know, some of us, we get into these sexual relationships. Why? Because then I feel a sense of worth. When I'm in this person's arms, I feel just a sense of worth. I feel like I mean something in life. That's what we're saying. I need that intimacy because that intimacy gives me a sense of worth. It's powerful. It's an incredibly powerful thing. It's an over-desire in most of our lives. Now, why? When we fantasize, you know, we're saying if that person would just love me, if that person would just sleep with me, or, you know, I'm going to take it, I'm going to progress a little bit and go further down. If I can just have that perfect Christian family, if I can have that perfect spouse, women say, if I could just find that one man who would just lead me, you know, if I can find men, if I can find that just that one woman who just, you know, be there for me no matter what, through thick and thin, you know, if I could just have the perfect children that come out of that perfect Christian family, you know, then I will know that my life is, means something. We're taught to value that. Most cultures are taught to value that at a very, very young age. We're cultured into that. Now, if you're married and that's your view... I guarantee you, I know, without even talking to you, I know there are problems in your marriage because of that. I know that. If you're not married, and you say, if I could just get him, if I could just have her, you know, this beautiful person who thinks and says, you know, I'm yours. You know, if you just want that, then you know what you're going to do? You're going to go and look for the most beautiful person that you see, 
You're going to pursue that person. You're going to want to, you know, you're going to want to do whatever you can. Project yourself in a way that you could look beautiful in front of that person so that you could win them. You can win them. You're going to, you know, some people use their bodies, their figures, their charms, their sense of humor, whatever they got, whatever capacity they have, you know, they will give up their purity for that. Jesus is actually saying that unless or until God is the lover of your soul, until that reaches to the core and replaces any other desire that you've got, you are not going to be fit truly to be a lover of anybody in your life. You're going to try to get out of your romantic relationships that which only God can give you. You have displaced it, and that is going to lead to the corrosion. That's the burning. You know, it's an idol, an over-desire, lust. If you want a relationship without giving total commitment, what you're really doing is you're objectifying that person. You're objectifying. That person is just an object to get what you really want, which is intimacy to get what you really want, which is that feeling of romance because the romance makes you feel worthy. You're looking for worth and that person is the object to give it to you. You're using that person. Another way of saying that is you're, every single time you have sex with somebody outside of marriage, you're using that person and that person is using you. You're being used to fulfill your desires and then you wonder why the emptiness is there sometimes. You know, you feel an appetite, you think it's going to fill you, but actually you get hungry again. You know, it's very impersonal. It's very dehumanizing. It's objectifying. Now, lust. Lust says, I want a woman to fulfill my needs. That's why I'm driven. That's why I need her right now. That's why reject, being rejected by her is just absolutely unbearable. Love says, I want this particular person in my life so that I can fulfill her life. Completely opposite. They are not just kind of similar things. They are completely the opposite. Lust says, I want this person in my life to fulfill my needs. Love says, I want this person in my life so I can fulfill their needs. That's what love is, completely the opposite. You know, because when I fulfill that person's life, trust starts to grow, healing starts to take place, you know, and not only, not only am I able to trust that person more, I can trust other people more over time. That's what happens. Sexual thrill. We live in a day and age, first of all, where we want the thrill of anything without the commitment to anything. That's just our, that's just our era. That's just our day and age. You know? So why would sex be any different? We want sexual thrill without the responsibility or the commitment that comes with sexual thrills. You know? So really, um, sex is just that apparatus to get us that. You know, we don't really want the person. We're objectifying the person. We want it, whatever that it is. We're trying to, whatever it is that's going to maximize who we are. You know, and that's why, you know, if you think about it, so many male-female relationships don't do well when, you know, you have a male-female relationship, they get very, very close, you know, and they always question, can men and women really be friends, you know? The reason why they say that is because then the male, the guy or the, or the female, ends up becoming, getting into a relationship with somebody else, and that friendship dissolves. Why do you think that is? It's because the agenda was never the friendship. The, the end was never the friendship. There was always something more. If you're truly committed to each other as friends, you know, the objective, the end is the friendship in, in, in and of itself. And so lust begins with this craving. It's fed by loneliness. Love is fed by fullness. Lust is fed by deficiency. Emptiness, poverty, brokenness. 
Love is fed by richness, a fullness, an over, you know, an overflowing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you get that? Most people see each other, you know, as objects of desire. You know, that's why they try so hard to get to know that other person. Um, it's why they get so discouraged or prideful when they're accepted or rejected by that person. And that become, that's what feeds the addiction. There's an emptiness, and you're addicted to that. Because the more you trust somebody, the more you come to love that person. You know, that's what friendship is. And marriage, again, is the deepest form of that friendship. C.S. Lewis says, But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet, and you try to prolong them artificially, all those things will get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer. And as a result, at the end, you're going to be bored, you're going to be disillusioned. If you wonder why your life gets so apathetic sometimes, you know, it's all part of that. Guy Mapasan, one of my favorite authors, he's a French author, Guy Mapasan, um, he was probably one of the famous architects of the modern-day short story. And, and um, you know, he was known to have, you know, a yacht out at sea in the Mediterranean, and he had, he had women just about in every major city, you know, all around. Women just adored him because he was a handsome man. He was a great writer. He was famous. He had wealth. He had possessions. He had material goods. His epitaph reads like this. It's in French, so I'm just translating it in English. I have treasured everything, and I've taken pleasure in nothing. I've taken joy in nothing. That epitaph was penned after he had killed himself. He had basically slit his own throat using a letter opener. I have treasured everything. I've coveted everything. Taken joy in nothing. That's Gide Mapasan. It leads to the destruction, the deterioration, the disintegration, the brokenness. That's what over-desire does. What do I do with my passions? How do I get healed from this? You're going to have to forgive me. I mean, you know, we're, doing, we're making good time here. I'm thankful to God we're making good time because when I first started, I had, my, I had enough content to go twice, two sermons. I wasn't sure what to do. You know, do I let these people stay till two? You know, um, and they're just going to walk out on me. So I, I, I worked and worked to try to whittle it down, and so we're kind of speeding through this. But, you know, I want to get to, here's a third point. We're finally here. How do I become healed of this? It's incredibly complex. You know, and simple at the same time. How do I get healed? What do I do with my passions? Because as hard as it is to control our sexual desires, you know, as easy as it is to just go into your lust channels, you've got to control it. Jesus says, you've got to control it. You know what? You know how, to what extent he says? Look at verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, he says, gouge it out. Throw it into the fire. If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Throw it into the fire. Pluck out your eye if it's necessary. Cut off your hand if it's necessary. Throw it away. You know, because it's better to lose your eye or your hand than to have your whole soul burning, experiencing the deterioration. That's what he says. And and he's giving you this vivid imagery so you do not forget it. And, you know, can you imagine the people standing around? I'm pretty sure they weren't, like, yawning, you know, and, like, you know, taking notes. They were were probably wowed, amazed, you know, perplexed by what he is saying, you know, disturbed at the least. You know, it's pretty graphic, right? But really what he's saying in very vivid ways, one, it might be, you know, and this is really what he's saying. He's not saying physically gouge out your eye, you know, chop off your hand, you know, um, He says, number one, it might be that in order to control yourself, you may have to take some drastic measures. It might be. You know, when you cut out your eye or chop off your hand, it means you are literally disfiguring yourself or you're maiming yourself. You're becoming a handicap. You know, we're built, we're designed to have two eyes. 
you know, if you chop off an eye, or cut, sorry, cut out an eye, gouge out an eye, what happens? You know, your physical ability to see, it gets impaired. You know, your peripheral vision gets lost. A lot of things happen. You know, if you chop off your hand, you still can function. You can still see, you can still use the other hand. You know, um, the right hand is the functional hand, usually in people's lives, right? You have your left hand. You can still function. You can still learn to function, but you will be maimed. He says you're going to get hampered. You know, you may have to do some things that are drastic. You know, um, there may be certain things that you'd like to see that you can no longer see. There are certain things that you'd like to do, but you can no longer do. You know, it's sort of like this. What if you had cancer in your eye? What would you do? You're going to do whatever it takes. Get it out, get it out. You know, that's what you're going to do. What if you had cancer in your hand? It's overwhelmed your hand. You know, if you let that go, if you let the cancer go in your eye, you know, if you let the cancer go in your hand, you know, let's just imagine, just pretend, if you had cancer in your hand, what would you do? If you let it go, you know it's going to spread. You know it's going to take over your life. You know it's going to destroy you. It's going to eat away you. It's going to decay you. It's going to rot you. It's going to disintegrate you. Can I use any other words? Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? It's going to destroy you. That's what it's going to do. So you, would, you know that it's necessary to do that so that your life will progress. You know, because if you, you know, you're going to miss it, but you'll survive, and you'll die if you don't. You know that. You know, as hard as it's going to be, getting rid of the tumor is priority. You know it, or else it's going to spread and destroy you. You think it's going to decrease your options, potential, freedom, and joy, but in actuality, if you let that go, it's, that's really going to decrease your options, potential, freedom, and joy. You're going to die. So actually, you're, you know, it's addition by subtraction. You're progressing by losing. If you think that sex is actually helping you to commit yourself to somebody right now, it's actually destroying your ability to commit to that person. You just don't see that right now. The eye and the hand, they're absolutely necessary in our lives for functioning. But what Jesus is saying is, at the least, at the very least, he's saying, I want you to see how serious this is for your soul. How serious an over-desire for a certain person is into your soul. You need to change that. First, you need to change what you see, and then you need to change what you do. First, you need to change what you see. Potiphar's wife, Genesis chapter 39, Joseph, you know, one of the you know, uh, famous characters in the Old Testament. Joseph rises to the level of, you know, in Potiphar's uh, household, who is a very, very powerful man in the Egyptian um, uh, government, and um, his wife says to him in no larger words. He basically, she basically says, sleep with me now. That's basically, what he, that's basically what she says. You know, and Joseph could have said, well, you know, this is a very pagan culture. Everybody does it here. You know, their marriage, I, I see them. I live in their house. I mean, they, it's not very, very good. Society here totally accepts having polygamous uh, relationships here. So, you know, I could do that. I can get away with it. He says, no. You know what he says? He says, do you know what your husband has done for me? Do you know what God has done for me? How can I do this to God? It's a wicked thing. He calls it wicked. He sees. You know, he actually flees from her. She grabs him by the coat and he runs away. He runs away. He escapes out of his jacket and he basically leaves it behind. Um, What did he see? He saw an integrated heart. I can't just separate you know, my body and my soul. I can't do that. It would be a wicked thing to do that. 
And so he chose to integrate those things and just worship God. The eye, you know, is an internal thing. What you see, what you, what your, where your heart is. You know, you know, I want this because I want to feel beautiful. I want this because I get a sense of worth out of it. You know, um, if, I don't, if I don't get it, you know, I'm going to feel empty. I'm just going to feel completely empty. Your hand is what you do, right? It's your will. That means that there are certain times in our lives we have to take drastic measures, you know, to be very, very wary of where we are. Some of us more than others. You have to avoid certain places, either because, you know, you know you're easily tempted, you know, by other people. And, you know, here, here's one thing. If you only think, you know, uh, behaviorally, the doing, you know, but you don't see, you know, why, it's going to lead you to failure. If you just see and know, and it convicts you, you know, but you don't do, you don't shift, you don't change, then you're just going to live in guilt. You're going to be in failure. You understand what I'm saying? Those things have to be integrated, always integrated. Jesus says, pluck it out, cut it off, or the cancer is going to spread. The difference between the thinking, you know, the thought, and the thinking or looking in order to lust. Jesus says, anyone who looks in order to lust, you know, is committing adultery in their hearts. You know, some people are going to walk away today and they're going to say, you know, I must not lust, I cannot lust, I shouldn't lust, you know, oh my gosh, but I, you know, and, and they're going to fail and they're going to feel incredibly guilty, they're going to be in bondage. Because as soon as they have that lustful thought, they're going to feel very dirty about themselves. You have to realize, you can't stop the thinking. You're never going to stop the looking. It's natural, it's part of your human condition. But it's the fantasizing. It's the going in deeper. It's taking the thought which you can't stop, you know, but then treasuring it in your soul. Letting it grow into something that's not meant to grow into. That you can control. That you can stop. You know, a lot of us say, you know, man, I just want him so badly. I just want her so badly. You know, um, you know and, and if I, you know, I can't, you know, I can't approach that person right now because I know that if I just go to them right now, something's going to go wrong in my life. You know, you're just living in fear. If you live like that, you're always defensive. You know, I, I can't go in. I want that person, but I can't. I, I know that I shouldn't right now because something bad might happen to me. Or, you know, you're just living in fear. and You're just guilt, living in guilt all your life. You know what your attitude should be? Your attitude should go like this. I can't control this. You know, in fact, Outside of the power of God working in my life, I can't control this. I have to give it up. You know, the Apostle Paul, not necessarily talking about sex, but the Apostle Paul says, I die every day. I die to my desires every day. Why does he say, I die? You ever take something that you really want and it gets stripped away? Let's take a relationship. You're really, really in this deep relationship with somebody and that person gets taken away from you. How do you feel? If it's not your choice, how do you feel? feels like death. Paul says, I die every day. You've got to die to it. You've got to give it away. Give it up. You've got to die to it. It's going to feel like death, but what Christ is promising here is that is the key to life. That is the key to rebirth. You know, that's a hopeful thing. You can either live in fear and despondency because, you know, uh, just always saying, you know, I I want that person, oh, but I can't have her. I want that person, oh, I can't have him. You know, you can have that fear. You can live in that fear or you can say, you know what, I got to give this up. 
I got to give this up because it is consuming my life. I want my life back. I got to give it up. You know, because I know in faith that if I do, Christ has promised that there will be rebirth in my life. Now, I don't know what that rebirth means. You know, what that means is you got to give it up without complaining about it, without grumbling about it. Because you see the joy that Christ is promising ahead of you is greater and deeper and more glorious. So what is that rebirth? I don't know what it's going to look like. Maybe it means, it, maybe it's going to turn into a spouse. Maybe the person's going to come back and the timing's going to be right and it's, everything's going to be ready. Maybe it just means that you're going to have new power in your life. Maybe for the first time in your life, you're really going to be free. Maybe that means for the first time you've understood the cost and yet the power of self-control. Or maybe you've experienced a purity that you never thought you were capable of. I don't know. It could mean a lot of things, you know. But one thing's for sure is that it's something that Christ has promised. Now, I'm going to take a very brief moment before I close, you know. Don't be guilty about your sexual past. You know, for those of you who have fallen prey or have been a perpetrator of that in some way, shape, or form, you know, don't be guilty about it. Remember, you know, Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy. If you were here several months ago, we went through the genealogy of Christ. We focused on women, the mothers of Christ, basically. And uh, there are a couple seedy, uh, they were all seedy in in some way, shape, or form, right? Um, We have, uh, you know, Rahab, who was a prostitute. Sexual sin. We had Tamar, you know, who um, committed incest, sexual sin. And yet they were written into the genealogy as mothers of Jesus. What does that tell you? God enjoys taking people with the most messed up situations, even sexually, and as they give their lives to him, turn it around and fill them with a grace that will transform them to become demonstrations of God's grace and mercy and power. It's not just grace and mercy. It's also power. That's what he does. He loves to do that. And why else would the genealogy be there? Why else would they be in the genealogy? So you have to say, you know, I refuse, if you've committed those kind of sins, you know, I refuse to look at this sin except through the lens of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you know that? I'm going to close with this. Here's Jesus to the Father. Jesus' intimate relationship with the Father. You know how intimate? They were completely integrated. They were completely one. You can have no greater integrated relationship than Jesus towards his own Father. So that means at any given point in time, Jesus is saying to the Father, I belong to you. I am consumed by you. I am captivated by you. I am living to fulfill your desires and your needs. And I love to do that. I am glad to do that. I am blessed to do that. That is what I'm here for. That is what our relationship is about. And here he is all the way through to the degree. Where did did his father then send him? All the way to the cross. He took the great spiritual journey in becoming humanity and then went to the cross. That's where it took him. Jesus says, I'm going to be completely vulnerable to the Father. I'm going to open myself to the Father, bend to his will, till death do I part from him. And so what did God do? He sent him to the cross to die. That's what he did. Sent him to the cross to die. In fact, the one time that Jesus, you know, he says, I love your people. I love them so much, I will do whatever it takes to bring them back. I love them in an integrative way, with my heart and with my soul, with my spirit, I will become, he becomes incarnate, comes to the earth, right? And he, what does he do? He's relational. He comes close. He comes near. <clears throat> and he shows 
and demonstrates his grace and his mercy and his love in the most beautiful ways all the way to the cross. And, you know, what that means is the one time that Jesus actually made himself vulnerable to us, the one time he actually came to become close to us, what did he do? What did we do? We killed him. We destroyed him. Jesus says, I will love you till death do we part, and we killed him. That's basically what happened. That's the truth. Jesus says, you know, I'm going to love, I'm going I'm to love you, I'm going to accept you, I'm going to be open to you, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to commit to you through every way. You know why? You will be my bride. You are dirty, you are sinful, and yet you will be cleansed by me because I will sacrifice for you, I will bleed for you, and it's going to cover over all that is wicked. It's going to transform you. That power is going to cover over everything. And it's going to cover not only everything on the inside, you know, it's going to transform and change everything and restore that. You notice when he went to Peter in John chapter 21, after he rose again from the dead, he knew all his, fans, all his friends abandoned him. They were very high on him until he got arrested. Then they took off. And Peter specifically denied Jesus three times. He didn't go to Peter after his failure. He didn't ask, you know, Peter, I want to know, why did you do this to me? You were supposed to be my friend. You said you loved me before. Why did you do this to me? That's not what he said. You know what he asked him? Very simple question. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? That's what he asked him. Jesus is bringing us in to the most intimate relationship we could ever experience. Do you believe that? Something that's lasting and loving, as faithful as Christ's love for us. He loves you. He didn't just lust after you. His desire wasn't to fulfill his needs. He had no needs. What do you give the man who has everything? He wanted you. He came to you to fulfill you. It's not like he gains anything by having his people with him as his bride. He loved you and demonstrated it by fulfilling your needs. Why do you think he, you know, he's, you know in John chapter 13, as he's washing his disciples' feet, he says now he was, he's shown, he demonstrated his love to the greatest extent. He gets down and he serves his disciples by washing their feet. Connotes the most dirty act that a man can do. You know, he washes their feet. What he's saying is there is no lowness that I will ever go. I will not be willing to go for you. I am here. My love is for you. I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to sacrifice my power, my position, my title, my own beauty. I'm going to be disfigured for you to give you a power that you never experienced before, to give you a place, to give you a name, to clean you, to make you beautiful in my eyes. I'm going to love you to the end till death do us part. And then he died. It's going to cost me to the end. But that is going to bring glory to my Father who I intimately connected with to the end. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've lost power. I've become emptied. I've lost intimacy. You know, my soul, my mind, my spirit has been ripped apart because the Trinity has been ripped apart when he died. That's what he's saying. His life has fallen apart. He has experienced hell. What is the cure for lust? Only when you see that Christ's desire for you in fullness will you see your desire for others misplaced, your agenda, your intention for others misappropriated. To the extent that you see that, if you don't see that much, if you don't experience that much, you're not gonna shape, it's not going to shape you much. But to the degree that you see Christ's love poured out for you, your love is going to be shaped by that. Your over-desires will be shaped by that. I have to close. You know, 
Unless you believe the gospel, Jesus might be king in your life. He might be your forgiver. He might be your savior. At the least, he's going to be a great example for you. But he's never going to be your lover. You ever been to a wedding? Bridegroom stands at the, you know, top of the aisle, I guess. And then the bride comes. And the bridegroom looks and beholds the bride. And what does he see? He gasps. Why? Because he sees the radiance and the beauty of his wife. Do you believe that when Jesus looks at you right now, that he's just completely taken by you? Do you believe that? You know, to the degree that you've experienced that, you're going to understand how to deal with sex in your life. You're not going to, you know, you're not, you're not going to, um, sex is not going to run your life. Um, at the same time, sex is not going to scare you to death. You know, you understand the gravity of sex, you understand the goodness of sex. Um, if you're married, you're not going to crush your spouse under your expectations because he's, he or she is not there for your sense of worth. Um, if you're single, you know, I'll say it like this, you know, um, for men, you will never be a good husband. You know, this is my favorite preacher. I, I don't know if he was the first person to say this, but I you know, love it when he said it. You know, you will never be a good husband until you first learn what it means to be a bride of Christ. Women, you will never be a good bride until you first understand what it means to submit to the love of Christ, to be a bride of Christ. Everybody here needs to understand what it means to be a wife of Jesus, to be the bride of Christ. You know, um, you know, you know, just for the men, you know, do you know why women have a hard time trusting men? You know, this is just anecdotal. You know why? And there, there are very good reasons to, for why they don't trust men. We tend to be very insensitive. We tend to be very tyrannical. You know, we tend to be very bullheaded. We just take, 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 you know. And, you know, women see that, and it's very difficult for them to then look at a man and trust him, you know. But you know why we do that? It's because we don't understand what it means to be a bride. We don't understand what it means to be taken, 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 to, you know, taken of. We don't, know, we don't understand that. But when you see that that's not what Christ does, the way he loves you, his grace towards you, his love for you, let that overtake you. You're going to learn to be a better husband. And when you're overtaken by the love of Christ, you're going to learn what it means to be a good wife. You're going to understand what it means to control because you need to control the power of sex in your life. Will you, as a church, will you... Just be just taken. There's a poem that's written, part of a hymn, written or a poem. It's a sonnet. It's a holy sonnet uh, written by John Donne in the, in the front page of your bulletin. You know, will, will you make that your prayer to Christ? To just let him overtake you with his love? And let that shape the way you see and what you do around other people. Will you do, will you do that? Can you commit to that? That's going to lead you to a life of purity in every way. Will you do that? Let's pray.